Well, good morning. It is very good to be back with you today. Lauren and I really enjoyed uh, our time last week, both at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, and then on Sunday I had the, the unique blessing of getting to preach at a church I grew up in. Uh, and it was just great to see those faces and to get to share that time together. Uh, but it is always good to come home uh, and to be here with you again. Would you pray with me? Lord God of Sarah and Rachel, God of Hagar and Hannah, God of the hopeless surprised by joy and God of those who at times feel overlooked and forgotten, God, help us this Mother's Day to recognize what is genuine and what is good. Open our eyes to help us to see your love in all kinds of places. God, we recognize today those who work so hard to be the mother you call them to be. To balance work and dance lessons and baseball games with dinner around the table and homework and bedtime prayers. And we ask you to bless them. God, we recognize those who thought parenting days were done, who had dreams of their own for the second half of life, but for a dozen reasons are now changing diapers and mixing formula, putting on pajamas and reading about three bears and saying bedtime prayers. And we ask you to bless them. God, we recognize mothers whose plans for family changed forever when he walked out. And now working 40 hours a week is only the beginning to finding good daycare, finding time to cook, finding the energy to be present for their children, and we ask you to bless them. God, we recognize mothers who are most like you in many ways, adopting children who aren't their own, but they make those children their own through unconditional love, and we ask you to bless them. God, we recognize those who invest their hearts in children who are destined for other families, knowing their time will be short, their attachment strong, and knowing, too, that their heart is going to break just a little. And we ask you to bless them. And God, we recognize this day the mothers who cannot understand how life can possibly still be going on, who don't know how to answer the question, how many children do you have? And we cannot imagine the pain that this day brings to the surface of their hearts year after year. We grieve with them, God, and we ask you to bless them. And finally, God, we recognize those like Sarah and Hannah, who month after month, year after year, are unable to conceive, wanting more than anything to hold a baby, their baby, but being told that it will not, that it cannot happen. And we cannot imagine the pain this day inflicts on those who more than anything else want a child. We stand with them today, and we grieve with them, and we ask you to bless them. God, we ask you, on behalf of all the women in this room, may you overwhelm their lives with your heavenly blessing, rich and full, and may you break into our cluttered and complex lives, surprising us with your simple grace. May you fill our lives with the joy and the hope that only a relationship with you can ever make real. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as we continue this morning with our sermon series, where we're trying to imagine what it really means for us to understand that we're not just living separate stories in our life, but we are called to live in God's story of life. What 
What does that mean for us? What difference should that make for us? As we open that story of Scripture today, what we see first is a group of people who are trying their best to, to figure out how they can celebrate their shared success. They've come a long, long way. It wasn't all that long ago, it seems, that they were just a ragtag group of hunters and gatherers barely making it, barely surviving, and now they are more than surviving. They are thriving, and they are able to not only settle down, but to slow down, to take a deep breath, to start to breathe, to start to dream to dream big, to build big, and that's exactly what they've done. They have built an impressive city. It's a city with bustling careers and beautiful homes, with long straight streets that everybody can get across town on. They they have office hours, and they have stock portfolios, and they rush back and forth to sports practices. They haven't just moved up in the world. They feel like they're at the very top, and they decide that the city isn't just enough. They've got to do something else to make their mark. So they talk about it, and they, they dream a little bit more, and they strategize a little bit more, and they decide that the best thing that they could do to kind of build an exclamation point on their, their lives is to build the tallest, largest building that has ever been constructed. They want it to dominate the horizon for miles around, And they want to do this because they want this symbol, a physical representation, a memorial to their ability, to their accomplishments. They know that no matter what happens, they can handle it. That they are the captains of their own destiny. And they want everybody to know it. And and they want to have this memorial to themselves where every time they see it, every time they look up to the heavens, they will be reminded of their own greatness. They know. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of just how much they've been able to do. They don't need anybody's help. That they can handle any challenge. That they can overcome any situation. Anything. Now God sees what's happening and shakes his head in deep disappointment. And he wonders how many times is this going to happen? How many times are the people that he has created from his heart and for the purpose of love, how many times are they going to decide that they aren't people who need to listen to him? They aren't created beings that need to try to hear with their whole hearts and their souls the words and the wisdom, the presence of their creator, that somehow, better than the one who gives them life, they know how to build the life that's truly worth living. I mean, it starts at the very beginning with the first two beautiful human beings that God breathes into life, Adam and Eve, It doesn't take long at all for them. They're living in this garden where they have more than they could possibly ever need, but it turns out not more than they could dream of having. And with all the things that they do have, with all the things that they can call their own, the one thing that they can't can't accomplish is to replace the one who gave them life in the first place. They cannot be God's equals 
But then there's this snake that tells them that maybe there's a chance, that maybe there's an opening, an opportunity that would change all of that if they'll just reach out and take hold of it. In that moment, not only do they betray their relationship with God that is built on the foundation of trust and love, but they, they end up breaking God's heart and they end up bending all the goodness that God has placed in the world out of shape. But it's not just God's heart that will break. Because before long, it's Adam and Eve whose hearts are breaking. And it's not just because their relationship with God is different. Because God finds a way through grace to keep Adam and Eve in his life. To keep Adam and Eve alive. But it turns out that they have sons, and those sons end up making the same kinds of mistake, or at least one of them does, Cain. In a fit of rage, and sick and tired of being compared to his brother Abel, decides to settle the score. God breaks into the story, and he walks alongside of Cain, and he begs Cain to stop before he does it, not to go through it, that he begs him to to have the strength to resist the temptation to think that he knows how to take life into his own hands and turn it into what he wants. And Cain refuses to listen. And so instead of letting the God who gave him life speak the truth to him, Cain violently takes the life of his brother. It keeps going on like this. It's not just Adam and Eve, and it's not just Cain and what he does to Abel. It's generation after generation that's passing, and people are deciding that they know better than God what kind of life they need, and they know better than God how to get it. It doesn't matter who they have to hurt. It doesn't matter who they have to betray. They're going to take a hold of that life no matter what. And God watches as all the original goodness that he placed in this world starts to be harder and harder to see anywhere and in anyone. Generosity is replaced by greed. Love is replaced by lust. And peace is replaced by violence. And in a moment of divine despair, God comes to a devastating decision, and that is things are too far gone. He's got to find a way to stop this train wreck and start over, to wipe the slate clean and try to reset this story. His decision to do that takes the form of a terrifying flood, a torrent of water that's going to wipe away just about everyone and everything God has ever created. But in a moment of unexpected mercy and deep and abiding hope, God mysteriously chooses to hold on to someone. To hold on to to a man and his family and it's, it's not a perfect family, but it is a good family. It's people who, even though they, they aren't quite living up to what God had hoped for them, they recognize God in their lives and in the world and in each other. This man's name, name is Noah and his family. They gather together in, in this grace that God gives them, this mercy that God provides for them, And he spares them, he saves them, and he's hoping that they as a family can serve as this brand new kind of person. 
that Noah can be a brand new kind of Adam and it really can start over and that by wiping away the past, God is trying to unlock, to, to recover, to reclaim the kind of future for humanity that God always wanted. But now we find that even though God held hope for Noah and his family, for Noah and his descendants, it is those very people who have forgotten. They have forgotten their own story. They have forgotten that it's not their story. It's God's story, and they're living in it. They have forgotten what happened to Adam and Eve and how God responded. They have forgotten what happened between Cain and Abel and how God responded. They have even forgotten Noah and the flood. Now they're so full of their own ambition They're so impressed with what they think they've been able to do that they come to the place in this story when anybody who could see what's really going on would want to thank God for all the goodness in spite of all the darkness to praise God for all the grace in spite of all the sin. They're too busy thanking themselves to stop and thank God. And when they should be trying to build a temple to praise God for that goodness and that graciousness. Uh, They're setting aside all that budget to build a monument to themselves. It's just like Adam and Eve. Except for this time, it's not a tree, it's a skyscraper. God has to do something. God has to intervene again. Because people have willfully lost their way Again, you see, this this skyscraper, it's not just supposed to be tall so that it's impressive. It's a ladder. They're hoping that they can build something so tall that they'll be able to not only reach heaven, but they'll be able to raid heaven. That they'll get there somehow, they'll find God on his throne, the creator of life, and they will take him off of that throne and sit there themselves. God knows it even if they don't understand it. He's got to do something. But he can't bring it in himself to send another flood, another terror. And in fact, he's promised to never do that again. But he's got to do something. And so he comes to the decision to do something significant, something that in some ways is every bit as destructive as that flood. But this time, God doesn't try to take their lives away from them. He takes their living connections away from them. He separates them from one another in the very same way that they have willfully separated themselves from him. Can you imagine God deciding That the best thing he could do is break down human relationships? That he has to stop them because of what they're planning to do together? That their cooperation, that their collaboration has nothing to do with the heart of God? Has nothing to do with who they were really created to be and to build? And in fact, their collaboration and their cooperation is devastation. And they can't see it. God confuses their languages. He makes cooperation and collaboration impossible. It's not what he wanted. It's never been what God has wanted. This story keeps having this cycle of of things going in ways that they were never supposed to go. And it's relentless. And to be honest, it's hard to keep reading it. 
He keeps beating us up as we read chapter after chapter in this story where people are, are created out of love, with great hope and great desire in God's heart to live a certain way for the sake of one another, and they end up being tempted to ignore God, push God aside, and forcibly take anything they want in any way they want because they think they are the reason for everything that exists. Their happiness is the reason for everything that exists. Their greed is the reason for everything that exists. Their power is the reason for everything that exists. Their possibilities are the reason for everything that exists. God over and over watches as these people created in love and with great hope choose to sin. They choose a different path and they hurt one another. And then God, through love, sends consequences for that sin to stop them, to try to save them from one another, to save them from themselves. And then grace, always grace, somehow in the midst of all of those consequences for sin, but they miss it. And they think not only are they the reason for everything that exists, but they're the reason for the grace that exists. God's got to do something. And it's hard as we look at it to have any hope for this story. You wouldn't be crazy to think that right here, near the beginning, that we've reached the very end. That enough's enough. How many times are we going to go through this cycle of destruction and punishment and then grace and starting over and then sin and punishment and grace and starting over? How many times? But it turns out, at least one more time, this all takes place between Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 11. And before Genesis chapter 11 is even over, God has decided he cannot give up. He sees somebody. He sees somebody who he thinks he can work with. And so he is going to start the extraordinary miracle of mending everything and everyone that's been broken through the the disobedience and the despair created through that disobedience. He's going to fix all of it. And he's going to work this extraordinary miracle through the life of an everyday ordinary person. A person named Abram. Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 12. Start reading in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. I will curse all the families of earth will be blessed because of you. Abram left just as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Just when it seems more than clear that God, the creator of human life, has every right to give up on all the humans that he's given life, He proves his undying faith in us once again. When he speaks to this man, Abram, seemingly out of the middle of nowhere, and he invites Abram, who in many ways has struggled with having a disappointing life. 
His name, Abram, means exalted father. He's never been able to actually be a father. That does something to you when that's something that you long for. When you have a version of your life that that you want to make come true, that you can't force to make come true, Abram realizes something about the future that maybe the people who tried to build the Tower of Babel didn't. He can't force his favorite version of his future to happen because he decides for it to. He knows his limitations. He knows what he can't make happen. He knows what's impossible for him. God speaks to him, and amazingly enough at this point in the story, he invites Abram to be who Adam failed to be and who Cain refused to be and who Noah couldn't manage to be either. To be this partner, to be this new kind of person. And God says, all I need, Abram, is for you to trust that it's possible. All I need is for you to believe that it's possible. And I promise you it's going to happen. I will work with you. I'll walk alongside of you and your family, of you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren from now until the end of time. I choose you if you'll just trust and believe in me. And we're going to do something that nobody else has ever done before. We're never going to break our promises to each other. And see what that's going to make possible, Abram? is I'm going to partner with you and your family to make a new kind of future possible. Together, we're going to walk into this this world. We're going to walk through this world together, and we will do something nobody thinks is possible. But I promise you, Abram, with me it's possible. We're going to rescue We're going to reach, we're going to restore, we're going to recreate every single person that's ever lost their way. We're going to recover every single person who's ever lost their true sense of who they really are. All you've got to do is trust. All you've got to do is believe. All you've got to do is come with me. It's an amazing conversation that takes place between the creator of life And this man who understands at a soul-deep level that he isn't that God. That he can't control where everything is headed and how things are turning out. And so he listens in a way it seems that other people haven't been able to listen. And I know it can be difficult for us all these years later to understand that God is not only speaking these words to Abram. Thousands of years ago, but this morning God is speaking these words to us because we're caught up in this, in this story. We're, we're caught up in these world-changing words of an ancient covenant because you and I are described by these words. We're addressed by these words. We are the sons and daughters of Abram, even if we don't realize it. The Apostle Paul explains this mystery in Galatians when he says that anybody who chooses to believe in God, anybody who lives a life of trust in Christ, mysteriously becomes, sacredly becomes, the sons and daughters of Abram. For even if he is not our physical ancestor, for all of us who are in the faith, he is always our forefather. 
in that faith. He blazes the trail of what it looks like to live a life built on belief. And he teaches us that when we look at our world and we are tempted to give up, when we look at the lives of other people we care about and we are tempted to give up, when we look at our own lives and we are tempted to give up, that we have a God that makes impossible things possible again. All we have to do is believe and trust and go with him. It turns out what this ancient covenant means for you and I is that if we will choose to live out the role God has in mind for us in his ongoing story, our lives will surely be lives of blessing. Now, what does that mean? What does a life of blessing look like? Well, we we look at the rest of Abram's life. We look at the rest of, of the lives of people in scripture who manage not to be perfect, but to faithfully lean on God and trust in God and do whatever it is that God is asking them to do, to try to live the life God wants them to live. A life of blessing is a life where you and I wake up every morning and we decide once again to try our hardest to share God's heart. Where throughout the day we are trying our hardest to live where we are dreaming with God. This dream of a world made right through loving relationships. See, God understands that the miracle of forgiveness and reconciliation that he longs to work through us, it has to start somewhere, and that somewhere is the human heart. And that is precisely where God always begins with us. To tap into our hearts, to tap into a longing to say, don't you want to believe it could be better than this? Don't you want to believe that even though all of us in different ways have lost our way, that there is a way back home? God speaks to us. God dreams with us. God calls us and invites us. And we find then that in that moment that a life of blessing is a life where we get to discover our true meaning and experience real joy and find unconditional love and then Somehow opening ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit, undergoing a breathtakingly beautiful transformation that has nothing to do with what we're able to do on our own, but has everything to do with the God who makes impossible things possible again. Don't you want to live that life? Don't you want to have a life of blessing? You'd have to be crazy not to take that offer. But here's the thing. This isn't just any kind of blessing, and it's not just about you and about me. It's about everybody. See, God's blessing, as it comes into our lives, as it floods our hearts and our imaginations and our behaviors, it's doing something. And it's doing something bigger than just one life being changed or a couple of lives being transformed. It's intended for everyone. This is a very specific kind of blessing. And if we forget it, we don't understand it at all. God's blessing is always showered on us so that we can share it with other people. That's how it works. That's how it's always supposed to work. But that's not easy to remember. We get so excited by all the good things that God is doing in us and for us. 
that we start to forget that God is doing those things in our lives and for our sake to change us into people who bless other people in his name. Oh, we struggle to remember. Abram, who would become Abraham, he struggles to remember. And his son Jacob, who would become Israel, he struggles to remember. And it turns out that all of Jacob's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the Israelites, they're going to struggle to remember. They're always going to be tempted to confuse the purpose of their choosing They get confused and they start to convince themselves that they are supposed to be the final destination of God's blessing rather than the destined pathway for God's blessing to reach others. They think they're the conclusion, not the conduit. And when that happens, they continue to receive the blessing and the goodness of God because it's grace. But they limit it. They limit it in the lives of other people who are around them. They, they stop it from flowing through them and changing the people who need it most. Well, it's difficult to remember. And they struggle with it. So we've been looking at these major overarching chapters in the story of Scripture. In the first week we talked about chapter 1. It's creation. It's the very beginning It's not perfect, it's good. It's not flawless, it's healthy. There's a difference. And yet into this goodness and into this health, we find God giving people the ability to choose whether or not they want to continue to be good, they want to continue to be healthy. And it turns out when you give us a chance to decide, we may manage to decide a couple of things good a few times, but before long, we're going to wreck things. We're going to be tempted to do things for ourselves and ourselves alone. And so what we find is that through Genesis 3 through 11, it's not just Adam and Eve. It's everybody over and over and over again. God tries to to start things over and yet we know the plot line. We fall from God's ideal. We keep getting reminded of God's ideal, but we don't ever really get back there. And so finally God does something more significant than he's done before. That is, he chooses one person, one family, to say, okay, I've, I'm seeing now that no matter who I choose, there's going to be ups and downs, there's going to be failures, there's going to be moments where I'm going to be tempted to give up and start over, but I'm not going to do it this time. I'm going to stay committed. And so you'll see in chapter 3, we suddenly get to be reminded of God's ideal. And it raises the water level of humanity to a place it hasn't been from the very beginning. But things are going to drift. And then you'll see it peak again around Exodus 34, where God has rescued his people. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, okay, I talked to to Abram. I turned him into Abraham. He went from an exalted father of nobody to a redeemed father of many. You're his offspring. You're his descendants. Do you want to be the kinds of people he promised he would try to be? They say yes. He says, okay, well, let me give you a law so that you can see my ideal in detail. You don't have to guess. This is what it looks like. Live this way. You'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing to other people on the face of the earth. They'll see how you're living in relationship with me and and everybody will be changed. The rest of history will be transformed. 
And what we would find if we had the time this morning to read through the rest of the Old Testament is they do okay for a little while. They see the ideal. They fall in love with it again. And then they fall in love with themselves again. And everything starts to fall apart. And it seems to be that while there are a few good kings, most of the kings aren't. That might be a lesson for us, but we'll get back to that later. Most of the kings, most of the leaders aren't. So what God does is he intervenes, and he does it through people time and time again. He sends prophets to preach to them, to get them to understand again. Don't you remember what you, what you had in me and my relationship? Don't you remember who you were supposed to be? And, and a remnant, a small group, always falls in love with that dream again, and yet they cannot manage to gather together a large enough group to, to raise that water level again of humanity. And we're going to find out next week the decision that God comes to when he sees that no matter how many times he partners with people, they just can't hold on to that dream. They can't remember that the invitation is not for them to simply be blessed for their sake, but to be blessed for the sake of the world. And they get in the way of that blessing. They, they block that grace. They stop the reconciliation from happening. And God just never gives up. No matter how confusing or complex or disappointing it gets, God never gives up. That's what covenant means. You never give up. You keep trying time after time. And and what God wants us to hear this morning is, we are the people who, if we'll just, if we'll accept it, if we'll believe that we have a God who makes impossible things possible again, that that God will work through us, that that God will work among us. And it won't won't just be you and me that gets impacted by that change. It'll be everybody around us. And it won't just be the people we work with or the neighborhoods that we happen to live in. And it won't just be this town. And it won't just be our state. And it won't just be our nation. It'll be everybody on the face of the earth. That's what covenant means. It means no matter what. And so God longs for us to remember this dream of the world made right through loving relationships, our loving relationships that God makes possible through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Loving relationships that recreate this world of ours into a world where every single person who has ever lost their way finds their way back home again. A world where everybody rediscovers their true meaning and purpose, where everybody has a shot at experiencing real joy, where everybody finds and encounters the power of unconditional love that transforms us in beautiful ways and unexpected ways into the people we were always created to be. That's what covenant means. It means no matter what. Now, I know that as we think about that, it can almost seem like the scope and the size of it's just too much to take in. I mean, I'm basically saying that in chapter 3, what God is trying to, to say to Abraham and then to say to us through Abraham as his sons and daughters all these many years later, he's trying to say that the future of the world is on our shoulders, that the fate of the world rests in our hands. That you and I are called not just to be in the world, but to save the world. And when anybody talks like that, I stop listening. 
I mean, how in the world am I supposed to get out of bed, stumble in the dark, get dressed, get, get to work, interact with everyday ordinary people and think that what I'm doing is capable of saving the world? Right? It always seems like hyperbole. It always seems like whoever's talking is exaggerating, but I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. That is your calling. That is your invitation. If you have opened your life up to a relationship with God, if you are trusting in Christ for your future, this is, this is your calling. Now, what does that look like? You're saving the world when you decide to pick up the phone and call somebody on Mother's Day who you know is hurting. You're you're saving the world when you choose to be warm and kind to a stranger who you can tell feels like they don't belong. You're saving the world when you decide to rekindle a relationship with somebody that you still don't exactly know how to find common ground with. You're saving the world when you choose to have less so that somebody else can have enough. You're saving the world when you repay your enemies with love and kindness and patience. You're saving the world when you raise your children to love people who aren't like them. You're saving the world in every single decision that you have in front of you, you have the ability to live into this covenant, to believe that, you know what? It's too much for us. We can't handle all this to just be on our shoulders and in our hands. And the good news this morning is it's never just on your shoulders and it's never just in your hands because this is not our story. It is God's story and we're at home in it. We have a place in it. We have a role in it. And I think too often we settle for small, selfish lives that are about us and what we want. Why would we ever choose that way of life when we could live for the sake of everybody? Live for the sake of everybody around us to find whatever it is that they need the most. We need to become God's children We need to become people who share God's heart. We need to share God's dream. We need to enter into that covenant and not just decide that it's enough for God to be the one who says to us no matter what. We need to look back to God and agree that no matter what, we are never giving up. We can do this, not because we're capable, but because God is our partner, because God is with us in this, and God is the one who maintains the promise and makes his words come true. Brothers and sisters, we don't just get to receive God's blessing. And God's blessing is not just something that you and I might manage to do. God's blessing is who we are. And may the people in this world experience that gracious truth through how you treat them how you talk to them, how you interact with them, and how you step into their lives, and maybe you're the only person who says to them, I'm here with you no matter what. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our our shepherds and their spouses, a few of them will be gathered outside of these double doors. They're there to pray with you, to talk with you, to be community for you. And so if you came this morning and praying with a Christian couple, speaking with a Christian couple would help you in any way 
We ask that you approach them as together we stand and sing.